Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in two places today. Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 6. And then we're going to be in chapter, uh, verse 16 through 18. We're going to jump to the end. This is the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, 1 through 18. <clears throat> and um, I feel like the last section, chapter 5, has been one sock in the gut after another. A little, some turbulence. You know, Jesus said some really intense things like, gouge out your eye, cut off your right hand, love your enemies, some things that were turbulent, that were convicting in our face and good. It, I always like to say, it hurts so good. Um, but now I feel like I could say, this is your captain speaking, feel free to unbuckle your seatbelt and move around, the move around the cabin a little bit, because um, th this is gonna be a little bit more down to earth and a little bit more, um, well, last time was down to earth too, but a little bit more, um, palpable and fun to think about. This is Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump to 16 through 18, and we're starting to talk about the practices and the lifestyle of Jesus. What were his practices and what was his lifestyle, and what does that mean for us? And I think we're in for a, um, some fun things to think about this morning. Let me pray. Father, um, thank you for being here. Thank you that we are interacting with you. We're not... Um, uh, just learning some information, we're interacting with a person, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're here with us. I can sense you here with us, and I pray that you would lead us through this passage today. We want to hear your voice, Holy Spirit, um, and would you help us appropriate this into our lives, into our thoughts, into our thinking, um, into our community, and into the way that we live. We love you, Lord, and give me wisdom as, we, as I walk us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, let me start with verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It says verse two. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they could be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I'm gonna jump to verse 16 now, okay? If you're following along, I'm gonna jump to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may, their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, that's what we're dealing with today. I'm, I'm kind of going to do the 30,000 foot view today because it's very important that we establish some things and then we're going to take the next three weeks to talk about these practices that he's referring to here. Um, here's what we need to know as we lay a foundation for this. All people are people of practice. All people. All people. To, to be human is to be practicing certain things and we, um, according to the Bible, we need to remember that we are always constantly becoming something based on what we practice. Um, this is what psychologists call the difference between a static mindset and a growth mindset. I, I think a lot of Christians are in danger of being in a static mindset, especially in the West, where basically we are saying to the pastor, hey, remind us of what we think we already know and encourage us what, with what we're already doing rather than I'm following Jesus and I am growing and I'm becoming a certain way or I'm following something, we're practicing something. 
And we do the things we do or we practice the things that we practice according to Jesus because of the perceived rewards that those practices bring. This is how the human phenomenon works. You are practicing things, not in a vacuum, but because you believe they will give you certain benefits, certain rewards. Somewhere along the way, you and I have assigned value in our hearts to something or some things, whether it's money or it could be being attractive or security, like financial or otherwise, reputation, um, youth, constantly looking young, information, like education, things like that, etc. It goes on and on. There's so many things that we practice things because we think this is worth having. There's a reward and a benefit that this brings. And based on our value system, we act or practice cer- certain things, even taking on a way of life, a way of living, so that we will achieve our values, which will ultimately shape us as the kind of people that we are becoming, the kind of things that we are. This is how it works. This is what's going on in every one of our lives today. Advertisers know it. Educators know it. Uh, Social media is ran on this um, human phenomena, and it's how God made us to function, okay? For example, you may practice a certain way of eating. We call it a diet because you highly value some kind of a reward. Perhaps you want to feel better in your body or you want to take down inflammation or you want to live longer. You want to be an overall healthier person or maybe you want to look better. You want to turn some heads, right? For some, looking good and thin is so valuable that they will even neglect themselves, to achieve that reward. We know this on the extremes when it comes to bulimia or something like that. We will deprive ourselves of what our bodies need because we value a certain look or a certain uh, reputation. We want people to look at us in a certain way. But overeating also is a practice. People may practice overeating because they value the endorphin rush that eating sometimes gives. I'm sorry, some of you are eating our carb snacks right now. I did not set that up on purpose. And we were like, that's okay. Um, we, call, we call, what do we call some certain foods? Comfort foods, baby. That's right, because it makes us feel better when we're stressed. We like to go to certain kind of foods because it, it actually releases some, some um, biological chemicals in our brain that help us relax and come down a little bit and and we have these rituals and routines and practices. The point is that everything we practice and the incredible power that it generates, I mean, some human behavior, you think to yourself, I mean, I know I work with people that even though practicing something will lead to financial loss or maybe their family will fall apart or their husband and their wife says, one more time and I'm out of here, or their kids will be hurt by it, still, they will still sneak out at night and go and buy that thing that they know they shouldn't have. I mean, think of the the power of the motivational system that generates certain kinds of behavior. It all stems from what we are motivated by or what Jesus calls our, our reward, what we're rewarded by. Jesus has a profound understanding of the human condition and absolutely expects, I want to point this out, he absolutely expects that his followers will begin practicing righteousness or the dikaisonai or the the dikaisune that they have seen in him. The righteousness, which means a right relationship between mankind and God, mankind and others, mankind and self, mankind and the earth, just a right wholeness of being, Jesus expects that certain practices will begin to come out of that as his followers learn through him and just learn from being by him. At this point, it would do us really good to remember that the three goals that came from following a rabbi around was, was one, just to be with your rabbi. Remember, we went over this in chapter four. If a rabbi called you and said, follow me, and you accepted, It meant that you were trying to be like him. So number one, the goal was just to be with him. It was to be around him. It was to watch him. It was to study him. It was to interact in in an intimate relationship with him. The rabbi would not say, meet me here for this hour between this time and this time and I'll teach you block one of my curriculum that I've written up and then we'll go our separate ways and we'll go. No, it was all access pass to the rabbi. 
He would see, you would see how your rabbi interacted with family, how he did business, how he interacted with children, how he walked about his day. You would see everything about, you would see certain practices, okay? One was just to be with your rabbi. Secondly, the goal to being with your rabbi was to become like your rabbi, to become the kind of, the same kind of person that your rabbi was. And thirdly, to do that, you would do things in your particular situation and in your particular life with your particular personality, you would do what your rabbi would do if he were you, if he were in your family, if he were in your business, if he were in your situation, what would my rabbi do if he were me, okay? That's what was going on here. And that means that Jesus, as a rabbi, absolutely expected and expects for those of us that are that have taken up the call to follow him, Jesus expects that his followers would behave or practice certain things and that certain practices would be the staples of their way of life, okay? Because they would have noticed these practices as they were studying him. They would have seen this. Jesus is, and let me just be clear, I think we need to kind of recalibrate here. Jesus is absolutely interested in our behaviors, I've heard a lot of people say, Jesus doesn't care about behaviors, just your heart. Well, wait, 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 wait. We just read chapter five. We're reading chapter six. Clearly, clearly, he is very interested in our behaviors. One of the most unfortunate, I think, overreactions from the Protestant Reformation against the Roman Catholic Church was the rejection wholesale of good works. What started as a right rejection of good works in order to get salvation morphed in turn gradually into the rejection of any and all behavioral expectations under the suspicion of legalism, okay? And through this theological lens, people have started to interpret the Bible and do all sorts of gymnastics to kind of get away from this kind of expectation that Jesus actually expects us to practice certain things, But as you can see, a plain reading, just a naked reading of the Sermon on the Mount makes clear that Jesus absolutely wants and expects a certain kind of behavior from his followers. I think the best and most accurate way to say this, the way that really maintains the balance of the Sermon on the Mount is to say behaviors absolutely matter to Jesus, but behaviors in and of themselves is never enough. I think that's the best way to say it. I've wrestled with it a lot. Behaviors absolutely matter to Jesus, but behaviors in and of themselves is never enough. Jesus cares about action, but he points beyond action to the source of all action. That's another good one that I worked on for a long time. Jesus cares about action, but he points beyond action to the source of all action. In other words, Jesus is interested in the heart that generates behaviors, but he cares about behaviors. He knows that true change is inside out. It's not outside in. That's the point. So within this very personal apprenticeship model of spiritual formation that Jesus is engaged in here, he knows that his followers are with him and that they're naturally going to notice certain staple practices that made up his way of life, and he expects them to practice too. And you can see it clearly in our text. In all three examples, giving to the needy, fasting, and prayer, notice he doesn't say, if you decide to give to the needy, or if you should decide someday to maybe fast, Or maybe if you someday should decide to pray. No, he says, when you give to the needy, when you fast, and when you pray. Jesus simply assumes that his followers will be marked by these certain practices. Now, and this is something, because they would have seen this in Jesus. They would have noticed that Jesus, oh, he's generous. He gives, especially to people, the person in the room that needs him the most. They could, in Luke chapter six, I think, they, could, they put a guy with a withered hand in the room knowing that he would beeline to them, right? They would have noticed that Jesus would have fasted often. We remember in uh, the beginning of chapter four when Jesus was tempted, remember his mantra, what he said to, when Satan said, hey, turn these stones into bread when he was hungry? Remember Jesus' belief system? He said, man shall not live by bread alone 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He believed in getting his sustenance, his main dependence from God the Father and the words that came from God the Father. So Jesus fasted on a regular basis. They also would have noticed that he would have prayed often. Jesus simply assumes because of that that his followers would do the same things. Now, there were certainly more practices in Jesus' life than these, and we will explore these, these later. We really will. We're going to go into a whole series about the way of Jesus and practicing his way. But for now, we're going to explore um, these most prominent things. These would have been the thing, the blocking and tackling in Jesus' life, these three things, giving, generosity, fasting, and prayer. Um, the disciples that he would, uh, the, to his disciples, these are the things that he would have turned to habitually. And if you were following Jesus around, you would have seen these things um, very, very, very clearly. Therefore, when done right and for the right reward, if you want the right thing, Jesus expects that these practices will be the source of strength and power in our lives as we follow Jesus too. And that's the case I want to make um, at some point. So we're going to spend the next three weeks exploring these three practices. Next week, we're going to talk about generosity and giving and what that means and what that looks like as a follower of Jesus. The week after that, we'll spend the whole time talking about prayer and going through the Sermon on the Mount. And finally, the week before Easter, we will be talking about fasting. And I want to be clear with you, I also am assuming that you and I are going to start practicing these things as we go through them, not just for those weeks that we're talking about them, but ongoingly, and we're going to provide some tools and some structure for you and some suggestions for you to be able to start practicing these things in your life. But first, before we get into those three things, we need to take heed to what Jesus is bewaring us of. If you notice, the first line here, Jesus says, beware of something. Verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Let me be clear from the beginning, the problem here is not practicing righteousness in places um, where others will see you, the bigger problem is practicing your righteousness, it's right there in the sentence, in order to be seen by that person or by those people or whatever it might be. Jesus is talking about a reward system. He's talking about motive, what the motive is of our heart. I know a lot of Christians who have turned these laws into a set of rules themselves. Um, they I, I just talked to someone last week that, said, that told me they were fasting and said, oh man, I think I just lost my reward in heaven. No, that's not how it works. Jesus is talking about um, the motive of the heart. The point is not, to, is not to not let others know that you are giving, praying, or fasting. The point is not to practice so that others will know that you are giving, praying, and fasting. In fact, to get this point across, some translators have even translated this verse, when you do good works, when you do, not if you do, but when you do good works, don't do them to show off. That's a, one, a translation of the Bible, and I think that's the real heart behind this. Don't do this to show off. And Jesus calls people who do hypocrites. The word hypocrite is theothenai in the Greek. Um, it's where we get our word theater. That's what he's talking about. And it, you, you need to understand, in Jesus' day, this was not a moral word. Um, it was not to judge someone's morality um, all over Palestine and even very close to where Jesus grew up, a few miles away from Nazareth, we know that the Romans put up little mini theaters where people would come, actors would come, and they would act out a story that was not their own. And the word, the Greek word for this was theothenai. You were acting or you were, you were it, was just a, it wasn't a moral thing. In fact, from what we can tell historically, it is actually Jesus who first pulled this word from the theater world into the moral world to talk about someone's spiritual life that doesn't add up to what they, to what they profess to believe. So, by the way, when uh, people around here call Christians hypocrites, we can, you know, Jesus is the first one to use that phrase against religious folk that he saw that were being hypocritical. Jesus is saying that people who do things to God, quote unquote, but, but for the notice and approval of others are acting. They are practicing a kind of theatrical righteousness type of a thing. They're not aware that they actually are craving the attention of God. They think 
that they need the attention and praise of others. So that is their reward. And notice that according to Jesus, God gives people exactly what they decide to want. This is a huge principle in the entire Bible, but Jesus aligns himself with it here. In other words, in the end, we all get what we choose to value. In all three examples, giving, prayer, and fasting, Jesus says, if you do this for human reward, I tell you the truth, that's what you're going to get. In other words, God doesn't stand in the way of what you, you decide to pursue. He waits patiently. If you don't involve God in what you are doing, he won't intrude in, on your project. He just lets you have what you want. If we do things to be seen by people, if that's the reward we want, then guess what? That's the reward we're going to get. But it only swells the ego and shrivels the soul, as Dallas Willard puts it. But there's a deeper truth here. Jesus knows that the reward driving every reward or the true desire under all our desires, whether we know it or not, is actually God himself. In fact, desire is the power surging through your spiritual life. Do you know that? Desire is the power surging through our spiritual lives. Our desires actually tell us, if we listen to them, tell us what we really are after and will, will lead us to God and to his, to his center. You may think you desire other people's approval, but actually that's just what we call misdirected desire for God himself. We were created by God to be with him and to be seen by him. We all want this. We might, it might shoot out in other ways, but what we need is his affection, affirmation, and his approval. Um, and we see that, I mean, just today, I, Noble was playing with those things, and over and over again, Daddy, look at this. Daddy, watch this. At home, all the time. Dad, Mom, watch this. There's nothing wrong with that. We long to be seen by someone that is absolutely committed to us and is present with us at all times. We all have an innate desire to be seen and approved by God. We need the loving presence of someone who sees us and loves us for who we are. And Jesus knows this need is only fulfilled in God. And for Jesus, this was the only reward he lived for. As a result, everyone else in one sense to Jesus was invisible. In one sense, he loved and saw other people, but it was for an audience of one. He was with his father at all times. Underneath all other desires is a desire for God. Your desire, and I, just, I really want you to understand this as you're following Jesus, your desire and your ability to connect with God as a human being is the essence of what it means to be made in the image of God. Desire, I want you to hear it loud and clear, desire is not bad. It can go bad. But desire is not bad. Desire is actually meant to fuel and fire who you particularly and personally are before God. It's a wonderful thing. But there's even a deeper truth than this. Let me read to you um, this quote by, Ru by Ruth Haley Barton. She says, before you were even aware of your desire for God, God desired you. There's an even deeper truth she's saying. He created you with a desire for him that groans and yearns in the very fiber of your being. We love God because he first loved us. We desire God because God first desired us. We reach for God because he first reached for us and created us with a longing for himself. Right in the very center of our desire for God is God's desire for us pulsating with love and longing. Isn't that beautiful? You desire things because, and you desire God ultimately because God first desires you and he put that inside you. The only reason we have desire at all, according to Barton, is that because we were made in the image of God who is in himself full of desire for us. This is what the psalmist says, this is deep calling out to deep. There's this reverberation, this echo going on within us. So because of this, there is a fourth practice that Jesus talks about here. It's a little cryptic, but if we do some digging, you'll see it. I think it is the, the practice to rule them all. 
I think it is the, the most important practice of Jesus, the bedrock for all the other practices of apprentices of Jesus. And so before we learn about the others, well, we'll start doing that next week, we've gotta get this one right. Jesus calls this practice the practice of the secret place. I want you to write that down if you're taking notes. The practice of the secret place. Let me show it to you. This is verse five, and I'll jump to verse 16 as well. But verse five through six says, and when you pray, you must not, look, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. But truly I say to you that, you have, that they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, or who is in the secret place. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Verse 16 says basically the same thing. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, or in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The secret, to enter the secret place is to take the spiritual life seriously. I want to say that again. To enter into the secret place as a practice and to do it often is to take the spiritual life seriously. It is to cease from constant striving for human attention and approval and to realize who we really desire and who really desires us and to give God our pure and undivided attention. That's what it means to go into the secret place. To enter into the secret place is to be free from our bondage to human expectations because in the secret place, we experience God as our ultimate reality, the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being. Listen to what um, M. Basil Pennington says in, in his book, Centered Living. He says, God is infinitely patient. He will not push himself into our lives. He knows the greatest thing he has given us is our freedom. If we habitually, even exclusively, to operate from the level of our own reason, he will respectfully keep, keep silent. We can fill ourselves with our own thoughts, ideas, images, feelings, articles, news, everything else that we want to do. He will not interfere. But if we invite him with attention, opening inner spaces with silence, he will speak to our souls. I love this line not in words or concepts, but in the mysterious way that love expresses itself by presence. I love that line. Let me read it again. He will speak to our souls not in words or concepts, but in the mysterious way that love expresses itself by presence, by just being with the person that you love. In other words, Pennington is on to the fact that in the secret place, God is himself our motive and our reward. It is just to be with him. We go to the secret place, to the place where no one else sees, the place where God is, and he is the, one, the only one that we long to be in love with, that we long for. The secret place then, in the words of Ruth Haley Barton again, quote, is about Lovers desiring, each, lovers desiring each other enough to finally take the leap into trust and intimacy and uninhibited expression. She says, it's about friends saying, I want to be with you so badly, I'll rearrange everything just to be, just to be with you. This is the motive of the secret place. The secret place is simple rather than complex. The secret place is a place of humility rather than of pride and ego. It's where we experience total dependence on God and our awareness that, that we love God and that he loves us. It's, you guys, here's what's difficult. It's not any place to get stuff done, right? We're not trying to get anywhere because in the secret place, we're already there in God's presence. It's very counterintuitive and very difficult for us in our culture to be and to live and just be with God and let him take the initiative. I'm here for whatever you would share with me or not. You're in control. I'm just here 
and I acknowledge that you're here too. This was the constant, constant practice of Jesus. This was the practice that ruled them all. It was from the secret place that he was able to give. It was, in fact, that's the only way, by the way, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing makes any kind of sense. That's impossible, right? You can't do that. What he means is that from the secret place, it's so natural that you just give without thinking about it. You just kind of, you just are from, because you're from an audience of one. You pray from the secret place and in the secret place. You, you fast in the secret place. In other words, eventually the secret place is not just some place you go, but it begins to be the place you take with you. Okay, it's the fire. So how do we practice this? Well, one, we need to realize that this is the source of vitality and strength and spiritual flourishing that you and I so long long for and need. Okay, we need to realize that. As a follower of Jesus, you would have drawn a straight line between this practice and the power of his clarity and the power of his presence wherever he showed up. Let me show you. This is John chapter six, verse 15. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. This is right after he fed the 5,000. He did this incredible miracle and they were about to crown him king by force. What does he do? Jesus withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself, to be in the secret place. And you remember what happened right after that? The disciples were rowing to the other side. They got in this huge storm and Jesus walks to them on the sea and calms the storm from being in this secret place. He's got this power, this presence, this strength. Let me read Mark chapter one, verse 35 through 39. It says, in rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place place or the secret place and there he prayed and saw and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him hey everyone's looking for you and he said to them let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also for that is why I have come and he went throughout all Galilee look what he does preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons or casting out evil so first notice that he left one location and found another a desolate place, presumably a place where he, it would be hard for him to be interrupted, although they did find him. And he prayed, and, and we'll get to prayer, but the biggest part was that he was with his father. He was communing with God. And when the disciples find him, they, they say, hey, there's more opportunities. More people are looking for you. More people need your help. And he had the clarity of vision and the clarity of mind to say, no, he wasn't reacting. Oh, well, let me... No, let's go over here. He had clarity. He had vision. He knew what he was about. He knew his direction. And when he showed up in those places, he had great power to ev- that where evil would flee before him. Notice also that he had this power everywhere he went. Why did he have that? Where did he get that kind of power? Well, here you might say with a lot of Christians today that say, well, of course, he was God. That's where he got that power. And look, we have to deal with this eventually. We might as well deal with it now, <laughs> okay? Because it, I think this issue that I'm gonna nerd out on you guys for a little bit is essential for us to understand when it comes to our following Jesus. I usually don't wade too deep into the into theology land, okay? But I really think it's important for us as a church, especially our stage as a church, and following Jesus. So give me five, ten minutes or so just to geek out on incarnational Christology, okay? And I promise you, I will tell you why this matters, okay? Do me a favor, turn to Philippians chapter two in your Bibles. Turn to Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. If incarnational Christology were a mountain range in the Bible, this would probably be one of its highest peaks. If not, its highest peak. So let's, let's let our nose bleed a little bit. Philippians two, verses five through eight. I don't have it on the screens. I really wanted your eyes to see it in your on your device or in your Bibles. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, okay? So according to this, Jesus begins in the form of God. That's morphetheao in the Greek. He begins in the form of God, and he ends in the form of a slave, of the form of a servant. So that's morphe dulao. It's obviously a poem, by the way. This is probably, he, from morphe theao to morphe dulao, this is probably something that the earliest church sang or recited or had some kind of liturgy around this, and Paul is quoting this. So before, before the emptying, he has, quote, equality with God in verse 6. And then after the emptying, he is in the likeness of men, verse 7. Okay, are you following with me here? Before he was emptied, he was in the likeness of God, morphetheao. And after he was emptied, he was in the likeness of a servant, or morphedulao. Now, the obvious verb in this sentence is emptied himself. It's echinosin in the Greek. Big, big theological word, echinosin. So the obvious question here is, what exactly did he empty himself of? That is the obvious question. What exactly did he empty himself of? To give you an idea here of the controversy of this whole passage, the NIV translates the Greek word echinosin to he made himself nothing, which is a very different idea than he emptied himself, if you notice that. Making himself nothing and emptying himself, very, very different idea than the ESV's more literal translation of the more literal word for echinosin is, is the word emptied. The answer is, and so what did he empty himself of? I think the answer is embedded in the text, but you got to do a little bit of digging here. So in classical Greek, are you guys still following me or am I, or am I, am I already, are we not having fun anymore? Okay, in classical Greek, so like about 400 years before um, like, so think Plato, think Aristotle, those, those kinds of people. In classical Greek, the word form or morphe means inner essence of, what is essentially you, inner essence, okay? And if you look, um, oh, excuse me, and then the word schemati means outward appearance, and in the Greek world, especially in the, philo uh, the philosophical world of ancient Greek, they made a big, a big to-do, a big difference between the inner essence versus the outward appearance. So if you study Greek philosophy, you'll, especially around Plato and Aristotle, you'll notice a big conversation about what is the inner essence versus someone's outward appearance. Um, so if that is the case then theao in this verse would be referring to the inner essence of God, right? If you look at the NIV, it's going to translate it, who being in the very nature of God. If anybody here have an NIV Bible? No? You? Okay, then you'll notice that. It's in the very nature of God. If you look at the ESV, it's going to translate it in the more literal, the very form of God. So is this the nature of God? Is, he, is this the divinity of God, the essence of his deity? Okay, well, let's think it through then. Not, okay, let me think this through. Not so fast. If that's true, then when he empties himself, he empties himself of his divinity. And that would mean, in other words, if we were to follow that interpretation all the way through the passage, he would stop being divine when he becomes human and would start having the inner essence, according to the verse, of slaveness, dulao. And we call that heresy. Not that you're a heretic, but that's what, that's what we, we say, that he stopped being God at that point. In other words, we'd be essentially saying he used to be God, but now he's, but he's no longer is when he, when he incarnated, okay? So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Conundrum. This is, where, this is where the battle wages. Well, here's what you need to know. The Bible is not written in philosophic Greek. It's written in Koine Greek, which was about 400 years after classical Greek. Um, 
And in Koine Greek, the term morphe could still be defined as the inner essence of something, like in Romans chapter 12, for example. That's a, uh, you know, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word conformed is a morphe word. The word transformed is a schemati word, okay? And that's very cut and dry. But it can also mean, and here's if you're taking notes, write this down, morphe could also mean role or lifestyle. Role or lifestyle. Most scholars and I tend to agree with them, think that, that Philippians 2, when it speaks of Jesus giving up the form of God and taking on the form of man, that this, is referring to, that this is not referring to the inner essence of God. In other words, he never gave up his divinity, okay? But he gave up um, and was emptied of the form or lifestyle of God, or in, in theological language, he emptied himself of his incommunicable attributes, if you want to get theo theologically nerdy. His incommunicable attributes are things like his immortality, um, his omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, immutability. That's what he set aside. Now, to be clear, he doesn't give up those attributes. This is, this is nuanced stuff here. He doesn't give up those attributes. He gives up the use of those attributes. Okay, very important there. So, in other words, in Jesus, he who is God immutable, in Jesus now grows and changes and learns. Immutable means God never changes, right? But in Jesus, he can grow because he chose to put that, to not use that. In Jesus, he who is omnipotent, all-powerful, is now able to get beaten by soldiers. He can be weak. In Jesus, he who is omnipresent, in Jesus can now be here, but cannot also be there. See what I'm saying? In Jesus, he who is om omniscient can now not know some things and therefore learn. So Jesus, or in John's vocabulary, the Logos, this is John chapter one, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and let me be clear, he's equal to God in every way. He never gives that up, but he empties himself of the use of his divine privileges in lifestyle. Or in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, sarks, and dwelt among us. Or in the language of the writer to the Hebrews, he became a little lower than the angels in Hebrews chapter 2. Okay, are you following me here? Maybe a good analogy would work, would help. Um, Nicole and I own our home, okay? And let's say we're the, own, we're the full owners of our home. And let's say we decide to rent it out to somebody else. Even though we are still the owners of our home, we voluntarily give up the right to enter it whenever we want, to barge in on someone that's living there. We're still the owners, we always will be but we've given up the key to access it. Um, Dr. Gary Brashears uses the example of, of, a, um, of an apartment complex or a motel where you get a, a key card and there's different key cards. Some are key cards just for people that get one room, right? And they can get into one room, but they can't get into others. Then you've got the manager key card who can get into even more rooms. Then you've got the owner key card that can get into wherever he wants, but the owner key card will, the owner will take his key card that can get, have absolute access. He's got, he can go anywhere he wants and he puts it in his pocket and he takes just, let's say he wants to stay in his own place. He just takes one key card and he only uses that. And he can go to others, he's still the owner, he can go to other rooms, but it doesn't work. It doesn't get him in. It's just open to one room. That's what Dr. Brashears thinks that, that Jesus is doing here. He's still God, always will be, doesn't give any of it up. He gives up the use of it. Now, in my opinion, this is the only way to make sense of the life of Jesus as we read it in the four Gospels. Can I just give you one example? Are, are you still with me? You're following me here? We'll hand out tissues to, to wipe the blood out of the nose. Um, and and I, I usually wouldn't do this, but I do think it's important, in fact, even vital, and I'll show you why. 
Um, Turn to John chapter 11, or I I can just summarize it, but John chapter 11, this is the passage where Jesus' good friend Lazarus gets sick, right? You remember the story? And his two sisters, they send word to Jesus to come, but Jesus doesn't come, remember? He, he, He drags his feet a little bit, and Lazarus dies. And then in verse 14... I I didn't turn there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, Verse 14, look what Jesus says. Well, I'll back up to verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking a rest. And finally, Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. How in the world could he have known that? He's out of cell range. Right? This is obviously divine knowledge, clearly. There's no other way that Jesus could have known that Lazarus had died. Okay? So then they go back to the town. They interact with everybody. Martha comes to Jesus and gives him this kind of accusation. Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not, die, would not have died. And he says, and he kind of gives her a theology lesson. He says, would, you know, do you believe your brother will rise again? And she says, well, yeah, I believe all of us will rise again at this end event you know, called the resurrection. And then Jesus blows her mind and says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? And then he goes a little further and Mary comes to him. She falls on her knees and she says basically the same thing, if not the same thing. If you would have been here, my brother would have died. And he is, instead of giving her a theology lesson, now he weeps with her. He cries and weeps with her. And then in verse 34, he sa- and he said, Where have you laid him? Now, how come he didn't know that? How come he knew that that Lazarus had died, but he didn't know where they put the body? Shouldn't he know everything? Isn't he God? I think that the Holy Spirit told him one thing and not the other. I think Jesus is fully God, but he's operating as a fully spirit-filled human on the mission of Messiah. That's what I think is going on here. Now, there's another person whom I love, um, a scholar um, named Millard Erickson. He believes that Jesus gave up his independent use of the incommunicable attributes. In other words, he still had them, but he wasn't allowed to tap into them until the Holy Spirit said. So there he is, he's off in some other place, he's talking with, uh, with the guys, and the Holy Spirit says, tap into your omniscience. And so Jesus taps into it and says, oh, Lazarus is dead, and then taps out type of an idea. So he, he and now you might say, is it that big of a difference? Well, kind of. The difference between where I would land and Erickson would land is that, I'll just be frank, I believe we can be like Jesus. Question. Yes. Um, I think that might be one reason. I think, though, if we, follow the whole, uh, if we follow the whole narrative of Scripture through, he is developing us into a human, into what he meant humans to be. And humans were meant to be completely, utterly, absolutely dependent on God the Father, and that is the source of their strength, the source of their vitality, and the source of their power. Absolutely, but yes, absolutely. I think God has an intimate relationship with us in that. The point is, if, I, if we were to do Erickson, this is why it matters. Erickson would, I, I could, even if Erickson was right, I could never be like Jesus because I have, no omni, I have no omniscience to tap into. See what I'm saying? And here's what happens. Why am I, why am I even doing this? Because when we come to the practices of Jesus, I hear so many Christians, including me at one point in my life, say, well, of course he did that because he's Jesus. I almost shoved it aside. I was like, well, gosh, if I was God, I'd walk on water too, you know? And I, it was almost like a dismissal. And that's a problem when we come to these practices and we see that he's going to the secret place for, okay, if he is not if he is, has not emptied himself of his attributes, that means the secret place is just something that he likes to do. It's like preference. It's something that he likes to do. But if he has and he's operating as a fully 
spirit-filled human on the mission of Messiah, that means the secret place means everything for my life. It means I can actually do that too. And if we're gonna go through the practices together, which we are, the practices of Jesus, you've gotta believe that they matter for you. There's gotta be a reward for you there. You've got to believe that they will actually give you the clarity of thought, the power of presence that Jesus himself had, and that we can grow. Otherwise, we just so easily dismiss them. Well, because he's God. And I felt like, man, we've got to nip that in the bud now, okay, right now. The beauty of the incarnation is that Jesus is completely human, dependent on his Father. Is he still God? Yes, Did he give up his divine essence? No, not at all. But did he give up the use of his divine privilege? Yes. Yes, I think he did. Why? So that he could show us this is what it is to be human. Let me show you my way. How how else could... The the term follow me could only go so far if he was still operating out of his divinity. And I've had conversations with many of you that that we're trying to wrap our minds around this. Well, you know, but he does have a leg up because he is God, right? And look, that's, I've wrestled with the same thing too. This is where I've landed. And this to me is powerful. It means that I can follow Jesus. It means that I can continue to grow in holiness. I can't. How else do we make a sense of in John? John says um, that his followers will do greater things than him. How do we make sense of that? I've heard so many people gymnastic around it and try to like come up with some philosophical answer. But the clearest reading is he means what he says. There you go. He is living a perfectly spirit-filled human on the mission of Messiah. And that means that we can live that way too. And if we don't understand this, then the practices of Jesus will only mean so much to us. They They might not mean nothing, but they can't mean everything either. You know what I mean? By the way, Jesus was in the secret place of the Garden of Gethsemane before he endured the cross. Remember, he, and the disciples, that was one of his favorite secret places. He would go there and pray. And to deal with the cross and the agony of the cross, he, as a human, went to be with his father. I believe it was what gave him the ability to endure the cosmic suffering of the cross. Do you have a secret place? Is this a practice for you? How different would your life be if you often practiced stepping away into God's presence? Okay, like I said, I'm hoping and I'm expecting that we start practicing this in our lives. And I'm hoping that, at our, that you will process this in your home groups. If you're not in a home group, get into one. But home group leaders, we will go through this and we'll, get, we'll flesh it out and get practical. How should this work? Let me give you some practical things. Remember, these are practices not just to be done in the weeks that we cover them, but I'm hoping you're going to start to regularly practice this in your life. One, you need a physical space. Let me get real practical here. Get a physical space. He says in verse six, but when you go, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who, who is in secret. Now, there are people, especially in a fast place culture like America who say, well, I just, I'm always with God. I practice the presence of God. And that's great. That's good. And I think that is eventually, of course, what we're hoping to do. But while that's certainly wonderful, and more on that in a second, there is something to be said about having a designated physical space to practice in. It can be a both and. Again, if you were a follower of Jesus, you would have noticed him actually going somewhere apart. Let me read another one to you. This is Luke chapter five. This really sums it up. But Jesus often withdrew and, and, uh, to places and prayed. He did this all the time, okay? In fact, the more busy he was, the more he would get away to recharge with his father, okay? Secondly, he had a space in time. Oh, but God's outside of time. Yeah, but Jesus is in time, okay? He's, again, the whole point, it's human. He wants, he's not apologizing for our humanness. He comes to us. 
He becomes human. There are some practical, there are some practices we do weekly, some monthly, some yearly, some, some lend themselves that way. Like obviously fasting may not be something that you wanna do every day. It might be more of a weekly or monthly or maybe even annual thing. That's fine, we can get into that. This is something that is daily, maybe even more than once daily. Okay, this is something that we often get away to. So have a set time that is designated to God. Put it on your calendar. Put it on your calendar. Put your devices away when the time comes. Um, I recommend setting a timer so that you don't, like figure out how much time you wanna spend with God and set a timer so you don't keep looking at your clock. When it goes off, you're done. It's just very practical. I do this three times a day. I do it in the morning before I um, get up and get moving. Um, I do it in the middle of the day. I actually work right next to Swedish Hospital on, um, on Cherry Hill. And so I, there's, they have a chapel in there. So I will go, I'll grab a coffee and I'll go into this chapel and it's me and a bunch of um, Muslim people <laughs> that go in there and we pray and they face Mecca and do their thing. It's quite beautiful to watch, but I, I'm there and I have my secret place and I, and I just am with God. And then I do it before I go to bed at night. I, that's my rhythm. Uh, whatever works for you, figure. My point is, have it in, set it aside um, and Pick a place that can't easily be interrupted or a place where your family knows that, hey, when I'm in here, I'm in the secret place. Please try not to interrupt me unless you've you know, lost an arm or about to die or something like that. You know? And eventually, it will be known that this is, what, oh, this is what's going on. This is where they're going. Okay? I, um, again, and a timer is a great thing, too. Um, also, um, it will become an inner reality that eventually fuels your behaviors. In other words, you'll take it with you. You'll start to live from the secret place. Verse four uh, says, so that your giving may be in secret. In other, or your giving may be from secret or maybe in that kind of generated in that secret place. Verse six, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret. So when you're fasting, you're doing it inwardly in this secret space that you've got in your heart. As a church, this is what we should, we should start practicing. So pick out uh, this week, pick out a place or places that can act as a desolate space for you to enjoy God. Again, a place that shouldn't be interrupted or at least is less likely to be interrupted and that your family knows. This week, um, and this is what we should ask in our home groups, this week, decide on a schedule or time slots. When would work better for you? And feel free to experiment. Some, some things may work, some things may not. You'll have to make adjustments. No big deal. Set a timer. Thirdly, assume a good posture when you're in this secret place. Get comfortable, but not too comfortable. You don't want to fall asleep. I say that, I have a friend who, no. <laughs> I say that because that happens to me, especially in the morning. I can barely think. I'm there. I, what I do is I get something hot. I get coffee and I hold it. And most of the reason is because I can't sleep while I'm holding a liquid drink, you know, and I just come before God and say, here I am, Lord. I recognize your presence. What do you want to do with me? Put both feet on the floor. Um, I love taking some deep breaths. Pray. We're gonna talk about prayer in a few weeks, but this is primarily a space to just simply be with God. I have a, what I call a mechanism prayer that just is, here I am. That's all I say. And then I will just be in his presence. And when my mind strays, because it always will, I, I use that prayer to come back. Here I am. I'm in the secret place with you. Okay? That leads on to the second point. Expect distractions. People call this the push and pull of the secret place. There's a desire in you to be there and a desire in you simultaneously to get away from there. You want to look at the news. You'll even want to read the Bible, but in order to get away from the presence of God. Don't, don't beat yourself up with this. Your mind will wander. You'll hear noises. You'll feel frustrated. You'll feel unproductive. You'll feel lazy, especially in the rest of our world is this go, 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 do, 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 get things done. This feels so counterintuitive when you're first starting out. It feels like you're being lazy. It feels like a whole lot of things. You're going to be surprised at how hard this is at first. 
Don't beat yourself up. Don't judge yourself. When you get distracted, simply re repeat your mechanism prayer and come back. Here I am. Here I am. Hey, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's exactly right. And even even if you fall even if you fall asleep in the presence of God, I, I'm thinking of First Kings chapter 18, where Elijah just does this just this. Bad, a awesome job work. He takes on the prophets of Baal. Remember the story, and he he sets up this altar, and he remember, and he he uh, the prophets of Baal they can't make it happen, and he like starts to mock them, and then he puts water on it, and fire from heaven comes down, and Israel is essentially cleansed that day from Baal worship, but. The queen, Jezebel, hears of this and she sends out this death threat to Elijah, remember? And he gets freaked out, he gets scared and he runs into the wilderness into a desolate place and you know what he does? He's so exhausted that he just falls asleep under a, a broom tree, I think it is, whatever that is. I'm sure some of you know what that is. But he falls asleep under this broom tree and notice God comes to him and takes care of his physical needs first. He lets him sleep. He brings food takes care of his body, like he doesn't come intellectually, and now let's talk. You know, he takes care of Elijah in the secret place first. He wakes up, eats his food, and then falls back, because he's just so absolutely depleted. So on one hand, if you're just so exhausted, I think it's beautiful. You can sleep in the presence of God. I think it's beautiful. Okay. Um, expect distractions. Consider praying the Bible, but not as a way to escape. This can be tricky. You'll be amazed on how much you'd rather be somewhere else or read anything else than to actually be present and face what he has for you. Again, the main practice here is to simply enjoy God's presence. That should be enough to get you all started. I would make a determination as followers of Jesus, experience and start experiencing the secret place in your own heart, in your own life. It'll keep your motives in check like what uh, Richard said, there's, it's so refreshing. There's no, play, no one you need to perform for anymore. No one that you need to impress. Only God, his eyes are on you. Like Noble or like a kid that says, Dad, look at me. Dad, look at me. There's something. And I tell you what, you will begin to develop an appetite for this. You will start to become hungrier for this. When you miss it, your brain will go, oh, I want to go back to that. I want to go back to that. 